This is Rocks to Roots, a podcast presented by the Spokane Conservation District. This podcast series is intended to share education and resources related to land management, conservation practices, and celebrate some of the great stewards of our land here in our region. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Rocks to Roots, the conservation conversation podcast from the backyard to the back 40. How are you doing, Brennan? I'm doing great. I'm. How are you doing? I'm good. I can't believe this is our last and final episode of season one. We will be back for season two, but it's just, it went by so quickly. It did. It, it's 11 episodes and I... It, it, it's been about five months of doing this. I mean, I feel like I just met you like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. we decided I, to do this crazy project. I feel like you texted me in May. <laughs> yeah. Two months after COVID had started, and uh, and so now it's we're it's it's been a it's been a journey, and it's been fun. So I, I'm really excited about season two. Yeah. Well, we are just so thankful that we found you as a producer. You've done such a great job with. All of the episodes making me sound good. Um, And we are super excited to partner up with you and your new um, business venture, Speak Spokane. So I want to like give you just a chance to kind of talk about Speak Spokane. Oh, wow. Real Uh, quick. Thank you. Well, Speak Spokane is a podcasting studio in Spokane. We are a community and organization, and we're all about helping people create the podcasts of their dreams. And we're really about helping businesses, personalities, anyone who wants to start a podcast, we want to help you do that. And we'll help you do that for free. We do the editing. We provide the equipment. And we really just, I'm about helping people start their podcasts. And I feel like this was a, a good test of that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and, um, and really, I, I'm just, I'm very passionate about helping people get their word out and create the podcast. Cause you know, the biggest issue with creating a podcast is that it's the equipment, it's the editing. These are things that, you know, take experience and cost a lot of money. And we want to provide that to people. We don't feel like that should be the stopping point for someone wanting to start their podcast. And we want to help them do it on a very professional level. Right. Well, yeah. And I'm not kidding folks free. He did say that they provide all of the equipment, all the production. And um, yeah, we are super excited to take Rocks to Roots over to Speak Spokane and start that partnership. So we will be reviewing season one. And I just want to take a moment also to thank all of our listeners, everybody who has liked our Facebook posts, who have followed us on Instagram, Um, who have left us a review. We are going to be reviewing season one as well and just, you know, kind of looking at the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, But we would love to hear from you and hear what you liked, what you didn't like. So that way we can just be even better for season two in 2021. Um, And if you have any guest ideas for 2021 as well, that would fit into, you know, our conservation theme. Um, let us know at our website, rockstoroots.org, 
And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So, but let's go ahead and we're going to jump in today. We have a lot to cover. We have Joni Kendall Moore, and she is the founder of Snacktivist Foods. And great episode today. Again, we're kind of wrapping up um, with our foodie segments um, of what we would typically do of the Farm and Food Expo. But uh, we'll let her take it away. So, without further ado, Joni Kinball Moore. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rocks to Roots. Today, we are sitting down with the founder of Snacktivist Foods, Joni Kinball Moore. Hi, Joni. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Well, thank you so much for being here. So I really just want to get into it and let's talk about Snacktivist Foods. First of all, the name is really unique, but um, tell, just tell us what is Snacktivist Foods and also where did you come up with the name? Well, that's an interesting story um, <laughs> in that um, many years ago I was working as a nurse and just always thinking about how food is the foundation of health and so many of our ailments that I would see at the hospital were diet related and my own family at the time was really suffering from you know just odd like the dietary sensitivities like my son was super gluten sensitive as a kid and I'm allergic to eggs like bonafide I carry an EpiPen and mm-hmm. my daughter was lactose intolerant so we're like okay no one will invite us over for dinner we're a complete pain in the butt <laughs> like we're that family that everyone loves to make fun of and um I just started thinking about the role that diet plays in in wellness, like even that level of wellness, Um, and started thinking also growing up in a farming community, I've always been really involved with local food movements, just even since I was a kid, and um, had one of my very first jobs at a farmer's market, so always really felt connected to the local food movement, Mm. and voting with your dollars, and food being a an actual more than just putting something in your belly to make it stop growling Mm -hmm. like food actually can be part of a bigger system and a bigger picture and it can be it can be very meaningful and to me I always thought it was a real tragedy that that doesn't transcend through the system level because when you think about people's best memories any random person say you stop them on the street downtown Spokane what's one of your best memories it's probably going to involve food uh-huh right yeah you're totally right so on the table with somebody here and it's a deep human connection mm-hmm. I mean if you go out on a date with someone for the very first time you're probably going to go out and eat right <laughs> yes <laughs> so I, I always just thought okay we really need to put a little deeper activism into our food choices and always felt that um the grain sector was super neglected mm-hmm. and it's been kind of the poster child for broken food system for a long time And being a student of history and a botanist and an ethnobotanist, I always was really uniquely fascinated with the role of grains and the development of civilization and how in the last 30 years, it's completely, we've lost touch. So Mm -hmm. So how many years ago was that? And was that really your first instance when you realized that our health was really suffering from our food system and what we're putting in our bodies? Oh, absolutely. Like when I was a diabetic educator RN for several years, like in Alaska and in Montana, I did that and worked with endocrinologists and primary physicians. And it it was a powerful example to me of the connection to carbohydrate foods that the average Mm. person has. And I'm a person that I don't really like sweets. It's not my thing. I'm not a huge lover of carbs. That's not my, that's not my Achilles heel. But it was a very powerful lesson for me stepping away from my own personal needs and really meeting people where they're at. 
it, that that comfort food level is super huge. And for most people, when you tell them, oh, I can't have bread anymore, I can't have anything carby, it's like part of them dies. <laughs> totally. I know. I just got yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah. It's like part of them dies. They're like, oh, my God. Like, you know, when I go home and see grandma, like, my world revolves around that. So mm-hmm. um, this was actually years and years ago, and it was a very slow-evolving project. And I ended up reading some blogs that were written by nutritionists talking about snacktivism as a concept. And I thought, that's super fun. Maybe I'll start a foundation that does food systems advocacy and health and nutrition and f- schools and, and whatnot. And then I ended up seeing a flyer at Java on Sherman back when there was such a thing in Coeur d'Alene, and it was for Startup Spokane, mm. 2015. Oh, my gosh. Like, I'm not a business person. Like, I was a nurse. And I'm like, oh, God, that sounds fun. It's on campus. There will be college people there. Like, I need to get away. I haven't gotten away as a mom ever. You know, my kids, I have three kids. And so I talked to my husband. I'm like, can I just do this weekend and just kind of check out from reality? And came back with a company called Snacktivist. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> I had never thought about it until the d- I literally showed up. And they're like, oh, you're supposed to pitch. And I'm like, what's pitch? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're, you're supposed to have a company that you think would be great. So I just wrote it up and pitched it. And that's how it really came into fruition. Mm-hmm. And so what are the products right now um, that you have for, well, with Snacktivist? That's an interesting story, too, because, that, <laughs> again, that's a learning curve. Like, I was really focused on reinventing these carby staples that, like, kids love, for instance. Oh, I love it. Pizza, muffins, <laughs> crackers, cookies, those kind of things. And because um, they're the things that I'm always like, oh, crap, like, what am I going to give my kid? Like, mm. they want pizza, and I want to make it healthier, but it still needs to be pizza, where is that balancing point? How can we up the bar on the quality of those fundamental foods that kids want and people want? And so I pitched a finished product company, like where we were going to make finished product, but I didn't know how that was going to happen. I had no idea how that would work. So because we're not a heavily funded business, we're family owned and operated, and I don't come from giant coffers of gold from somewhere, <laughs> um, we ended up going, okay, well, we can afford to make baking mixes. <clears throat> That's something we, it's a low-hanging fruit. It's obtainable. If you're a small, um, un, you know, unfunded company, you're like, oh, there's an entry point that we can penetrate. We can do that. So we started making baking mixes, and that's what we're still doing. We launched a finished product line last year, and we piloted it. It was great. We piloted it at um, Thomas Hammer locations, Albertsons in Boise, um, several other places. Great feedback. But again, we, we need to raise money because that level of manufacturing is, is capital intensive. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, again, I mean, we're still in baking mixes, which was great with COVID because people were at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have, I know I was eyeing the focaccia mix. Mm-hmm. And you have pizza dough and mm-hmm. brownies and mm-hmm. cookies. And am I missing any? Yeah, we actually have a protein waffle and pancake mix okay. that uses like a pea protein, um, legume um, protein. And we also have falafel mix that's made from garbanzo. Ooh, so that's fun. Yum. That's like our entry point into those savory bean-based things. And we have a whole product line that we'd love to launch based on that concept. But, yeah, next year maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, a main focus for Snacktivist is obviously supporting sustainable farmers and getting mm-hmm. away from using those more commodity um, right. grains. And so tell us, like, why did you decide to, well, obviously the nutrition was a big thing for you, but what, how did you really get to go and move your, make your product off of those? Right. So once I had to remove 
wheat from my diet and I had reduced wheat in my diet actually for many years because um, um, as a kid I grew up in rural Oregon and driving combine was really good money and my aunt and uncle lived on a farm so I would go stay with them in the summers and they were on a working farm like we had a small farm but it was like more hobby farm like cattle and you know small things Christmas trees things like that yeah. but I would go and live with them in the summer and drive like heavy machinery like wind rowers and big huge trucks I had like a big huge truck ODL driver's license when I was like 16 <laughs> and people would drive up and give me the hey buddy look and I'm like some little scrawny 16 year old kid like driving a double axle diesel international they're like what <laughs> it was Boss awesome <laughs> but I always wanted to drive combine for wheat because my cousin did and it was great money and I would go out there and my eyes would swell shut and I'd break out with hives and I never could do it so my oh, dad wow. being like a good old boy like you know farming logic he's like hey if if that's what wheat does to you, you probably shouldn't eat a lot of it either. Hmm. Just mm. duh, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first light that ever went off. And so I was like, huh, maybe I'll kind of back off on eating a lot of wheat-based things, which led me being a college kid and going to co-ops and more like natural crunchy type stores. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll eat quinoa or I'll eat whole cooked millet or all these unusual grains that no one had ever heard of. This was the early 90s. Hmm. You know, so I'd go to like the farmer's co-op in Eugene, Oregon. And of course they had quinoa because it's Eugene, Oregon. (laughs) It's like hippie (laughs) capital. But, um, and that really introduced me to a whole nother world of alternative grains. And then I started thinking, okay, well now we have this epidemic of sensitivities to wheat that really started picking up momentum in the early 2000s. And it's really, I mean, it's documented by the CDC. It's like a non-pathogenic pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, we're all familiar with the word pandemic now because of COVID. Yeah. Mm. But what we don't realize is that we already have a pandemic going on and it has to do with diet-related illnesses. It's still the, well, I think COVID has actually taken over, but it was the leading cause of death globally. Um, for years and years and years. It's actually took over from very famous, terrible things like malaria. So, you know, it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. And when Mm -hmm. I started to really work backwards and I was like, huh, diet-related illness, what's the source of the the real root of the problem, especially with cardiovascular disease and diabetes? And it was a really distorted picture of our carbohydrate staples. And then investigating that from a scientific perspective, because I have a botany degree, so I get really nerdy. If I go there, just stop me. Tell me to stop. <laughs> say, mm-hmm. say this in English, please. And, um, and then from a business perspective, I started to understand the, the, the bigger workings globally that have made society dependent on just five major commodity crops globally, mm-hmm. where 200 years ago, we subsisted on a way higher variety of different um, random grains and legumes and non-seed things like quinoa, buckwheat, all these things that we call cereals, but they're actually pseudo-cereals. They're not real grains. Mm. And um, even when you go back to Roman times, and I've I have explored northern Africa from a ethnobotanical and um, anthro- like a nutritional anthropology perspective. I'm really nerdy like this. And um, really investigating like the old casors of the Berbers and the early Arabs and where the Roman Empire built their civilization on grain stability. That was like part of their economic foundation. Mm-hmm. But even with that, when we think of Roman bread and Roman meal, when you look at the skeletal remains of the average Roman, based on the, the carbon deposits in their body and their bones, we can tell that they actually didn't subsist on wheat. They lived on millet, millets and sorghums, which are lesser grains. and 
those completely disappeared from our diet in the 20th century. So I, I really think that we need to bring back this diversification mm-hmm. and that will help break the cycle of sensitivity in our diets. Mm. It'll help push more of a nutritional forward profile with our food. But very importantly, it will also break um, cycles of chemical dependency in our agricultural systems. Mm -hmm. Because when we increase the agricultural biodiversity, we start to break these cycles of chemical dependency for pests, for viruses, funguses, and even for nutritional chemical inputs. and that's a huge deal because when you talk to farmers and you talk about the state of soil health, um, a lot of the issues we're dealing with our nations and our farming lands around the world and the soil, the soil degradation, there are a lot of parallels to our human health degradation issues as well. Like they're inseparable in my mind. Mm-hmm. And because a huge percentage of the world's arable lands are dedicated to growing grains, either for human consumption or for animal consumption, if we don't disrupt and improve that segment of our food system vertical, we're doomed. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally the basis of our nutritional world. Mm. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it impacts the climate even. Yeah. <laughs> like it's so many acres that if we could really improve the way we're growing cereals and make it more sustainable and even make it carb- carbon capturing, we could we could make a considerable imprint against climate you know, carb- like uh, carbon capturing technologies get a lot of attention when they're fancy, you know, when they're like proprietary and they have to do with robotics or electronics or something super sexy, like Elon Musk style. <laughs> but when it has to do with good old fashioned agriculture, everyone's like, oh, whatever, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not sci-fi enough. But when you really break it down to math and you really break it down to like carbon capturing load, we realize that agriculture has the potential to have as big of an impact as like electronic cars or Mm -hmm. electric cars. I mean, that's a huge deal because everyone talks about electric cars. Mm -hmm. No one talks about farming. Right. (laughs) We need to talk about farming. Absolutely. Because Mm -hmm. we all have to eat. We don't all have to drive, Mm -hmm. but we all have to eat. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's where the paradigm comes down to food. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that there has been such a drastic loss in the diversity of grains over the years? Well, it's really economically driven. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's efficiency driven too. And I don't want to ever get sucked into just bad mouthing farming or industry because it came to where it did post World War II because of scarcity from World War II. I mean, we were really experiencing significant lack of labor on our farms, significant lack of capital because all the money was going towards the war. And that's when we had some very ingenious um, developments in both agriculture and in food manufacturing that said, hey, we can still put food on the table. We're going to use these mass production techniques. Mm -hmm. And that's great because during the war, we had a huge percentage of our working hands overseas fighting the war. Mm -hmm. They weren't on the farms. They weren't in the factories. And we're, I, I think it's really cool that we were able to figure out a way to move forward. But... When the war was done and everybody came back and everyone's like, hey, this is great. We can just mass produce everything. We didn't keep that 
mental checks and balances equation in 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 our vision Mm -hmm. and we were solely focused on quantity and not on quality and I think that quality equation needs to be brought back into light and I know you guys are really focused on nutritionally dense things I've spent tons of times tons of hours (laughs) speaking to Scott Gale about that as well (laughs) yeah and even with your podcast with Adam talking about nutritional density and and that's a big deal because it's not that Americans are starving, it's just that we're full of the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And that's the root of our domestic food system mm-hmm. issue. Right, yeah. We've definitely fallen into this um, comfortable, like, kind of, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say. <laughs> We've become comfortable with the idea of fast and easy and yeah. quick and, um, yeah, just not really diving cheap, into cheap. getting yep cheap cheap <laughs> and, and, and yeah. no not and not diversity there's no diversity yeah. yeah you know you eat the same things over and over again yeah that's kind and of according to the usda into. i mean our our wheat consumption has doubled since the 1950s and so when people come with to me a little confrontational because they're if you say you're in the gluten-free field like there's always 50 percent of people that are going to be like oh let's taunt you and because it's you know it is a little preposterous for us, like, or pro- I'm having a brain fart. It is a little, it's a little cheeky to be like, oh, let's eliminate wheat in a culture like ours or in mm-hmm. America. I mean, it's the foundation of our heritage as Americans, you know. Mm-hmm. Amber Waves of Grain is in a lot of our cultural, you know, big deal things um, for a reason. And so, you know, when I talk to them about the fact that, hey, you know, really, we, our, our consumption patterns dramatically changed and that caused a mass sensitization event and bringing back the diversity in the grains and bringing back diversity even within wheats and barleys and rice and the, the staple crops, it kind of helps to break that cycle that sets people up for the sensitization event where suddenly they're like, I can't eat wheat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of farmers that are like, I'm a wheat farmer. I'm a fourth generation wheat farmer and I can't eat wheat. Mm-hmm. A lot. A yeah. lot of them. Mm-hmm. So That's how do we break too. that cycle? How do we bring back our, um, you know, carbohydrate staples to have the diversity that they once had? And still mm-hmm. make them taste good because people are not going to give up fast. They're not going to give up delicious. They're not going to give up easy. They're reluctant to give up cheap, although there is a little more play there depending on the, you know, group of people who you're targeting. But, um, you know, you have to make it you have to make people feel like they're they get to have their cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. That's okay. really important. <laughs> yeah, people want what they want mm-hmm. <laughs> when they want it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, what were some of the resources and or partnerships that really helped you um, or really got Snacktivist off the ground? Well, early on, I mean, I have to say, Spokane Startup Weekend was awesome because it allowed me to tap into business thinking and have some resources that I never would have even thought existed like the Spokane Business Library is one of the best in the country amazing resources there mentors um people that you meet that love like Gonzaga's entrepreneurship program WSU has an entrepreneurship program Mm -hmm. Snap Women's Business Center works with emerging Mm -hmm. businesses all these resources that I would have never known about and um I don't think I could have even gotten off the ground without them to be totally honest, because I was like, what's a margin? Like, I don't even know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a nurse and a scientist. That. Like, I know other things, but that's not my wheelhouse. So 
to have access to those kind of things is amazing where you can sit down with someone and they can explain the business end of things. You know, I feel like I've gotten a crash course MBA in the last few years. Mm. Yeah, so I think Spokane's really lucky. We have great resources. Also in um, Idaho, because I'm in Coeur d'Alene, we have NIC, and they've got, like, interns available. Um, You know, there's a lot of cool things. There's an SBDC program, very robust. So if you're an entrepreneur, don't hesitate to reach out to those things because they'll save you a lot of uh, grief if you listen to them. So how did you really get start getting in front of these producers and what has helped you to implement and foster really good relationships with them? Well, that's what's really tough is like in our sector, you know, you've got your micro business perspective and you have to nail that first to scale to where you can actually be big enough to get farmers to grow for you. And so we're like, we're always like kind of back and forth, like undulating between those two things because we are a small business. We're not, we're not big enough to really move the needle yet when it comes to producers. However, when we pair up with things like WSU, we're working with their um, soil, well, not with their soil sciences, but their cereal sciences and um, their breeding programs and stuff there, that they're like, hey, you're a value-added producer. If we get a grant and we implement, say, a millet growing project for the state of Washington, can you help us as a value-added player, which we're a value-added player. We add value to regular um, agricultural crops and make it ready to go to market. And so that's where we start to get more and more involved with the farmers that we're working with. And um, even though we have a real focus on allergy friendly, we are actually piloting a line um, in the next few months to launch regenerative wheat. So wheats that are grown using regenerative agriculture. I love it. Yeah, and that's really important to us because we're not out to demonize any one food group. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we think that being inclusive to meeting people where they're at in their dietary journey is really important and making an impact on the general agriculture while we're at it. So Mm -hmm. we're pretty excited about those potential partnerships in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... The food industry, obviously, is just this big, massive, I mean, it feels like a mountain that, you know, is just, I don't know, it's so big. So you really are, you know, trying to change the food industry with your products. And so what would you say are like the biggest challenges that you're facing right now? The biggest challenges for us having a food brand is that manufacturing is expensive. It's um, the cash, the cash cycles in manufacturing and in food are, they're just really capital intensive and you always have to have a lot of available cash. There are certain types of things like, you know, tech and et cetera, where you don't need to have a lot of operating capital available. You just don't, it's not the business model. But with food, that is inherent to the business model. And so, you know, we're always, you know, we're really grateful for, organizations like Craft3. Um, they lend to food companies regionally, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, SBA, those kind of things. Um, investors who are willing to get in and see food as an opportunity, knowing that it's not going to be a quick two-year turn and burn like the latest tech gadget mm-hmm. out of Seattle, mm-hmm. which is meaningless and doesn't impact anyone's life. It just makes a few bucks, you know. So you we're really dependent on capital at this point and quite frankly we've got so many amazing opportunities and we were really in line to capture a huge um growing momentum in the food industry 
it's always capital limitations that holds us back. Mm. Yeah. It takes money to make money in this industry. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, you know, in talking to our farmers, it's it's awesome because um, as we start to move forward, there are more dynamic relationships that can be forged that can help make that cash cycle a little easier to manage because um, you have to be viable and you have to be profitable and you have to be mission-driven. So it's, it's a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how are you marketing your product right now? And what are your priorities, I guess, in that in the marketing? Mm-hmm. Again, marketing is a pay-to-play yeah. world. <laughs> um, we actually have some really exciting brand development things happening that um, we're just waiting to pull the trigger as soon as we have the capital we need to move forward with it to have a very deliverable brand experience to people and to consumers so that they can pick up a bag of our product, whether that be a baking mix in the center aisle or a frozen product in the frozen section or Mm. even a ready-to-go thing at the coffee shop like our cookies were at Thomas Hammer where they're like at the checkout and they're like, oh, I'm kind of hungry. I'm going to grab a cookie or I want a treat. Um, You have to be able to communicate how that consumer is experiencing what our mission is. And that's a very expert execution. Like you can't just fake that without a marketing background, <laughs> which is what we've tried to do because we're totally bootstrapped. But <laughs> um, but we have some amazing partners in place that when we are able to move forward, it's going to be phenomenal and it will radically change um, our consumer interaction mm. at the point of enjoyment. You know, they'll be like, oh, I'm actually part of a movement. Yes. And right now our packaging doesn't say that because, I mean, I think we've done a great job internally, but, I mean, we're not a branding agency. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a tough thing to, to communicate with, uh, like, you know, six square inches. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, you're part of a movement that could possibly save the planet. Right. You're not just getting a cookie because you're hungry and, you know, feeling like an, indulgen- an indulgence. Right. That's two very different plays Mm -hmm. for like, hey, you get to enjoy something great. You're going to love it. It'll fill you up. It's nutritious and it's a great play for the planet. That's some serious, sophisticated storytelling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Definitely. On six square inches. Yeah. It's the full circle Mm -hmm. that we got to support. And people Mm -hmm. have to realize that every time they eat, they are participating in an economy and it's an intentional event. Um, a lot of times you're forced to eat just what you can afford, and I completely mm-hmm. understand that because we're there too. But there are really cool places you can start where you're like, hey, I'm just going to focus on this consumption. Like say you love coffee and you're like, hey, I can't really do a lot because I'm on a fixed income, but I'm going to make my coffee count. I'm going to buy fair trade coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, or um, you know, I'm going to participate in local sourced grains and I'm going to buy my flour from a local farmer or I'm going to buy my vegetables from link or mm-hmm. you know um yeah share farm or whatever it's like you just choose that one place where you can have that food activist component and then it starts to totally f- like fuel a whole nother economy mm-hmm. that's better for the future yeah no and I love this point that you're making right now because I think that um you know, for a while there, it's like, well, eating better or eating nu- nutrient-dense foods is a luxury, you know, and yeah. I I get that it can feel like that. But yeah, I love that point that you made, like, start small, just start with yeah. one thing and then, you know. Most of us can't afford to just, you know, be perfect, like, 
scoop, you know, community all the time. Like, right. yeah. you know, like you, you look at these bloggers and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have three kids and a family and, you know, it's not, it's not obtainable. So where, where do you start? And I think it's smart to just focus on one thing at a time and mm-hmm. <clears throat> really enjoy it and share it with your friends. And then it builds a bigger ripple effect in the mm. economy and in our community. Mm-hmm. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into this. Um, so why is it so important to, you know, support those sustainable regenerative farmers as much as you can? Well, for one thing, and I could rattle on about this for a long time, Mm -hmm. but I think one thing specifically that's very important now is that food security is national security. And if you don't have food in the pantry and you don't have access to food, you can't have a functioning civilization. And so our food systems globally have gotten so distorted that um, very few people control the mass movements of food around the world. And most people don't realize it, but the same companies that control a lot of the movements of the ingredients also control the proprietary seeds that they sell to farmers to grow. And they they are so centralized and they <clears throat> they occupy so many levels of the system that we're really utterly dependent on them. You know, mm-hmm. everyone loves to sit around and, you know, theorize about, who, you know, fear. And I mean, I live in Idaho, so it's like there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theory over there on a lot of levels. And I'm like, guys, the biggest the biggest theory we need to crack and focus on right now is not masks or no masks or COVID or whatever. It's our food system. Because if we take control of that, we're ultimately in control of our destinies. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what a lot of early early wars were all about yeah. it was food sovereignty mm-hmm. food, food sovereignty is a big deal and it's something that we just don't think about we're very comfortably in bed with like you know several of the biggest multinational billion dollar corporations in the world and we completely utterly depend on them the minute they just decide to change we're all in big trouble mm-hmm. so i think that that's something that we can't just i mean obviously we're not they're not all bad and i don't want to paint that picture but we need to start slowly um taking charge of our food systems little bits at a time and so supporting local farmers and supporting local producers is part of that movement that makes us resilient mm-hmm. in the face of whatever global catastrophes happen whether it's politics or viruses or climate change or whatever, if we have control of our local intact food systems, our communities will survive. Mm-hmm. So how um, has COVID affected your business this year? Yeah, that was a radical pivot <laughs> because <laughs> our, our biggest business segment last year was food service. Mm. And food service has taken a very hard hit. It absolutely breaks my heart. Um, mm-hmm. Every day I just think about all of our food service workers and people and how this has affected them. And um, for those of us who supply food service, it's also been a huge hit. So we saw this coming back in March and we have, we've spent time in Korea developing some export programs for Korean markets. And so mm-hmm. we have a lot of contacts in Korea yeah. and they were like, guys, get ready. Cause this is coming your way. And this is, this is real. Like mm-hmm. you need to be, pivot your business now for resiliency. And so we actually pulled all of our food service bulk inventory and we repackaged it into Amazon 
mm. single pouches, mm-hmm. and we were able to ride that wave of COVID, which was great because um, a lot of businesses couldn't survive that. Mm-hmm. So I feel really lucky that we were able to do that. I literally had my kids down there with hairnets, like packing bags. It's <laughs> 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 like this all has to go to Amazon tomorrow. <laughs> oh my yeah. yeah, but we but we did it, and it's been great. And you know, as far as making lemonade from lemons you know it's taught us a lot about bigger market pictures and about having a great balanced omni-channel strategy where you don't ever have all of your eggs in one basket as a company it's very sexy to go there and be like okay i'm really laser focused and i'm only selling to one vertical like i only sell to food service or i only sell online and i and i understand the theory behind that but what i learned from covid is that makes you very, very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel really fortunate we were able to pivot. Stay tuned for more Rocks to Roots right after this. Did you like this season of Rocks to Roots? Make sure you leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Also, make sure to visit our website, rockstoroots.org, and continue the conversation with us on our Instagram and Facebook page. There, you'll find additional information and resources about all of our guests and the topics that we discussed. We can't wait to kick off season two and be even better. So what is the... And, and we've covered a lot, but what is the mission and goal of Snacktivist Foods and how do you keep that at the forefront of your business? Yeah, our goal is to make people rethink food in, in general and to come in closer contact with it, not not just, you know, this mindless eating. Um, so that's a huge goal. But then our second huge goal is that um, we really need to make sure our economic drivers and our consumer drivers in the food system support sustainable agriculture. So I'm really passionate about into the future developing great products that feature very, you know, unique um, crops or crops that are underutilized. We already do that because we make food out of sorghum and millet and things that normally are like, you know, not fed to humans. And, um, and to start to teach people that you can have consumer enjoyment out of these diversified crops. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, you know, the, the different flavors can be a wonderful experience. Um, frequently, there's a, there's a common occurrence where everyone's like, oh, gluten-free food. How does this stack up to a piece of Wonder Bread? It's like, it's never going to be a piece of Wonder Bread. Yeah. Like, Wonder Bread, it's, it's, it's an enigma. Like, we want to look at food at like with a true focus on flavor profile and nutrition. So it's like you'd never come, you would never say Pliny IPA. I'm going to compare this to Budweiser. Right. Like you'd never <laughs> do that. Like, and so we need to do that same thing in grains. And it's happened across the, like, look at apples. When I was a kid, it was Granny Smith or Red Delicious. and that, Or no, yeah, or Yellow, yellow Del- no, Gold there were golden, red, and green. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. 
And now you look at the Apple section and it's just like, boom, massive diversity. galaxy and <laughs> all these crazy yeah, names. and it, it's happened even in kale. It used to just be a lawn ornament. Now you can buy five varieties at Albertsons. You know, I mean, it's just crazy the diversification mm-hmm. in, in diet that has happened everywhere except really the grain sector. Mm-hmm. It's just stubbornly stagnant and it's because of the way the industry controls it. And it, it's ripe for innovation. So we're going to disrupt it. That's part of our goal. And uh, we want to reteach people how to enjoy carbohydrates. And I think that that will fix a lot of this recent demonization with like keto, grain-free, paleo. It's like, that's great, guys. I understand the theory. There's definitely a role for diets like that, but they're not globally sustainable. Only in the United States where we are so affluent would we ever think eating that high in the food chain is even a doable thing. Mm. And from an environmental toxin standpoint... It's a little sketchy, you know what I mean? Um, like from an ecological perspective, I do worry about that. So, you know, we have to bring back these staples for a global sustainability role and for an environmental role. Mm-hmm. It's just got to happen. And and there's proof that it is happening in all these other verticals. And it's just waiting to happen in grains. Mm-hmm. So I hear the term ancient grains a lot. Mm-hmm. And so... Can you tell me what that is? Is it really just ancient grains or like, what is that? Yeah, really it's kind mean? of romanticized. It's kind of okay. a romanticized word, but we had to call it something. <laughs> and so it's really just um, the ancient grain cluster of things is really items that were grown historically in other civilizations and were removed from the boom with uh, industrialized manufacturing of wheat, corn, and soy in the 50s and, and beyond. And so, you know, you, you, t- you go to Peru and they're like, ancient grain, you're calling quinoa an ancient grain? I mean, this is what we live on. It's not an ancient grain to them. But to us, we cluster that in ancient grains. And the irony in, in that is that quinoa is not even a grain. It's a seed. And so um, that's why I think ancient grains, I'm passionate about it, but it's kind of a misnomer, to be totally honest. Um, with wheats, because there are several wheats that are clustered into ancient grains, and they're usually landrace or you know, more ancient wheats that are not intentionally hybridized. They haven't been, you know, genetically selected for certain traits. They're, or if they've been selected, they were selected for a certain environment. So Washington has a very robust land race wheat movement where we have boutique wheats that are grown in certain areas that have certain characteristics, not because they've been in a lab and selected for that, but because the farmer just said, hey, this grows great, and I'm going to regrow it. And when you have proprietary seeds that are, you know, wheat's not genetically modified. Most people don't realize that, but you can't grow genetically modified wheat in the United States. Um, But it's very heavily selected genetically. And it's engineered for certain traits and qualities, and that's cool. I mean, I'm a scientist. I like science. I'm not against science. But um, but you can't regrow those seeds. Either they don't regrow or you're not allowed to because you'd be breaching some sort of proprietary legal oh, thing. So corn is a really good example of that because it is genetically modified. And if you're trying to grow sovereign corn in Ohio and you're surrounded by proprietary genetic seed corn, even if it cross-pollinates with your corn, you can get sued. because you've stolen proprietary genetics. Hmm. And that is a slippery slope that we need to be really careful about because, again, food security is national security. You've got to be careful who you hand the keys to. And that's where ancient grains come in, and there are old-world, like, old-school corns that are still growing in 
in uh, Mexico that haven't been modified at all except through Mendelian selection. So it's like literally someone going, oh, this is beautiful. I'm growing it next year. Oh, this is even better. I'm growing it next year. It was just a natural selection. It wasn't lab selection Hmm. or genetic modification. So, yeah, so Ancient Grains, it really covers a lot of different things from around the world that are grain and seed based, honestly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what are um, some of the main grains that you use in your products? There's a lot of grains we love and would love to use, but we decided to focus and narrow our focus on teff, sorghum, and millet. And there are three very distinctive reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, teff is grown in Idaho. We have a great teff growing project in the Snake River country, and it's all milled in Idaho. So that was a natural play for us because it's Idaho grown tough, and it's beautiful. It's got a great flavor profile, and it's super nutritional. Millet actually has potential to be grown in our area, so Washington, Oregon, Idaho. And um, it has a lovely flavor profile, which I think people are a little more used to. Like you can buy sandwich bread that has millet in it, so it's not super-duper foreign. Um, And then... We like it because it's a great crop rotation for farmers in our in our area in the northwest mm. and even throughout the Rocky Mountains like Colorado. A lot of our millet mm. actually is grown in Colorado because we don't have the millet growing prog- programs here yet to supply our needs. Um, sorghum is a different play. Um, sorghum has a very intentional um, regional effect in that it's grown in the areas of the Okalaga aquifer. Probably you can tell it's late in the day. Hmm. So, and that aquifer is huge and it's, it's all throughout the Midwest. It stretches from like, I think the Texas panhandle all the way up to Iowa hmm. and it's, it's becoming salinated and it's becoming polluted and it's actually drying up. And a lot of what's driving that is corn irrigation. Mm. And so there are a lot of farmers that are switching to sorghum because it grows. It's actually a relative of corn. Um, It grows in the same areas that corn grows, but does not require the aggressive irrigation and aggressive fertilization that corn does. Um, There is a whole world of exploration in sorghums. And I, I really believe that sorghums will play a very vital role in food security moving into the future and that they we need to aggressively explore the role they play in our food system and um, there have been some exploratory plantings even in like southern idaho and they grew really well Mm. but we've never they don't they um they open up their breathing apparatuses at night the stomata so um because they're an african plant they are designed to withstand really hot, dry conditions during the day. And that's what makes them drought tolerant. So they absorb all that energy from the sun during the day. And then at night when the sun sets, they open up their stomatas, which allows them to breathe. And they are able to do all of their metabolic work at night when they're not drying out from the sun. And in the face of a changing climate, regardless of what's driving that, because I'm not here to argue about climate change, mm-hmm. I'm here to go, hey, if this is happening, we better we better start adapting now. Um, I'm, I'm a survivor and I, resiliency is huge and, um, sorghum, sorghum could feed the planet in a face of climate driven scarcity of farmlands. Mm. So it's something that I think as a nation, we should invest in for like national security, like food security purposes Mm. of like, okay, we don't know what's happening, but it's got a short growing season. You can grow it in the face of tremendous you know, hardship, like drought, low fertilizer input, say we can't get fertilizers from China anymore. 
can we still grow sorghum? Yeah, we can. Not at super beautiful high yields, but we can still grow it. Corn? Nope. The minute those chemical ships stop coming, you'd plant it. It wouldn't even grow. It wouldn't even grow seed. If you stopped watering it and if you stopped fertilizing it, it would it would produce no food. And so that's a big deal. Yeah. So we're really passionate about developing products from sorghum. Um, and that's like a whole world that I would love to devote myself to from a product development standpoint. Because sorghum's got amazing nutrition. There are even some varietals that have the antioxidant concentration that is like comparable to pomegranates and blueberries in weight. Granted, those varietals have intense flavors, so it's not like you're going to make a food 100% out of it. But to augment food so that you're getting a big pow of antioxidants from like a slice of bread, how cool is that? Mm. Yeah. And it's shelf-stable. It doesn't require refrigeration or freezing like berries do most of the year, you know? And so when you look at like, okay, how can we deliver nutrition to people in a package that they're going to understand, like an English muffin or a hamburger bun, sorghum has a lot of potential to help to help impact public health. Wow, that's really fascinating. I personally have not heard of sorghum mm-hmm. or have known anything about it. So that's yeah, only really interesting. Know about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it though. Yeah. Is there anywhere where we have came in contact with sorghum, the sorghum that I I would know about? No, probably not. Um, sorghum syrup. Mm. Um, so sorghum was very important in the South, um, until recently. I mean, it still is important, but, um, it was brought over by slaves from Africa and it was their traditional food. Mm. So sorghum was grown very extensively in the South, uh, through the 1800s, even early 1900s. Most of it turned into syrup or, you know, like, um, um, cooked whole. You can cook it whole. It's like a big couscous kind of thing mm. or even powdered into flour. But that really went away. Um, you know, like the 30s, 40s, you just saw sorghum kind of disappear from American, you know, uh, ingredients. I mean, even like old, old cookbooks, there are references where, you know, kind of like pioneer women, they would add sorghum to things. Like it was just kind of, okay, if you're low on wheat, you add in sorghum. You add in millet. If you have a ton of wheat that year, you feed the millet to your pigs because wheat bakes up prettier. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's how humans used to survive. They'd be like, hey, we, we're short on wheat this year, and so our bread is going to contain, you know, um, yellow dock seeds that we harvested from the, you know, stream bed, and we're going to cut in, you know, all these other random things that we can grow, amaranths, which are Latin American in origin, different things that are kind of weedy, considered weedy. Mm-hmm. And that was what bread used to be until the Industrial Revolution of bread. Mm. It was kind of a survival food, and it included a ton of different things. So I would love to, you know, someday explore that. Like when I retire, I could just be like a geek that can <laughs> go around the world and study the origin of and the historical references behind what like what breads fed the Roman Empire because their soldiers would go marching for six months and they would eat nothing but bread and greens and a little bit of meat here and there and they were they had pretty good health so they obviously weren't eating Wonder Bread because that would kill you really fast (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and so these are like you mentioned they're resilient crops too right I mean, they grow like it's not Mm -hmm. rocket science to grow them or anything. So why aren't they like in the commodity? Well, they are considered soft commodities. They are traded globally in the commodities market. 
they just don't have the consumer experience yet. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things we're really interested in doing is exploratory and getting people to understand and try and like sorghum. Because, I mean, if you are a flavor forward person, you put sriracha on everything, there's no reason you can't love like a bread that has a little more of a flavor profile. I mean, flavor profile is really relevant in the 21st century. I think mm-hmm. as a as a nation, especially regionally in the Pacific Northwest, we're moving away from this like homogenized, really bland diet. Like we like ethnic food, we like different flavors, we like flavor forward things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's where I think that there's a huge opportunity coming in grains and reinventing that grain sector to have that same experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But chances are you've never had sorghum. It's so interesting, though. It's so yeah. We're going to change that, though. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say. We're yeah. Gonna yeah, especially, like, moving into next year with, like, these cool wheat farmers that we're working with where we're like, hey, you know, why can't we make a, a bread mix that's, like, the base is your regenerative wheat. It's really high quality. And then we're going to add in some high antioxidant sorghum and some, you know, like, some nutritionally forward you know, lesser grains, and then you have like a hybridized product where you're mm-hmm. getting the best of both worlds. Yeah. I think there's a lot of um, potential there. And I bet you anything, a lot of people who are gluten sensitive would probably find that they would tolerate those products better than these super processed, um, pure, purified wheat products. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's really interesting mm-hmm. that you say that because, yeah, definitely mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. So, Joni, I'm really curious. So if you could just wave a magic wand, <laughs> um, what would your ideal like food economy and what would the food industry look like? Well, right now, I mean, I think if you would ask me this five years ago, I would have had a very different answer because <laughs> I didn't know enough about how the food industry really worked. Mm-hmm. And so if I could wave a magic wand, it would be creating, for one, like paths to market and paths through manufacturing that could make these novel foods so that people could start eating them. And then that would start driving the economic forces to make farmers start to transition to growing regenerative, Mm -hmm. sustainable Mm -hmm. crops. And the missing link right now is that value added piece. It's like the manufacturing and the brand and all the money that goes into that and to teach people how to experience food in a new way. Um, you know, once we get that part fixed, and that's where my magic wand would work, that, oh, yeah, we've got all this money and we can do this, we can make these products and we can educate people about it, it would start to drive all the farming practices that we want to see. And then you get to work directly with farmers, which is another huge opportunity because farmers are willing to change farming practices if it's economically incentivized. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just basic common sense. And so if you can start working with more and more farmers that are doing really great work, like they're really thinking, they're trying to improve their practices, um, that consumer drive suddenly becomes a a tremendous movement for good in the world Mm -hmm. that would have a ripple effect not only for farming economics and rural economies, but also from that climate piece and that carbon mitigation piece and building up the soils of our farmlands again Mm -hmm. to be a reservoir for carbon and all kinds of other good things. Mm -hmm. So um, that would be one of my magic wands would just to be like, hey, let's fix these missing pieces, (laughs) which are very (laughs) capital intensive. So that magic wand better have some serious like, you know, oomph behind it. (laughs) 
So um, what's on the horizon for Snacktivist Foods right now? Yeah, so this year we've really been focused on consumer at-home baking. I mean, COVID and quarantine made Mm -hmm. that a big thing. And um, moving into next year, I'm really praying that this COVID experience eventually either normalizes or goes away. I mean, that'd even be better, but (laughs) I'm I'm a nurse. I know better. (laughs) And... um, but that people start dining in restaurants again and our world comes back to a new normal. And um, so we're really passionate moving forward in finished product goods because when people are working and the economy's thriving and everyone's running around, food that's convenient and ready to go is, is huge. Mm-hmm. And most people don't have a lot of time to cook. Mm-hmm. Most people are working or chasing their kids mm-hmm. or going to school or whatever. And it's been great that 2020 created an opportunity for people to reconnect with baking and cooking at home. Mm. But um, the reality is, is I don't think that our society is going to be super jazzed, stuck at home, baking all day for the rest of our lives. That's just not going to be good. And so we want to accommodate a changing world. And so right now we're doing that product development piece and doing our research. We're working with like phenomenally bright students at Gonzaga and, you know, um, it, that they're doing market research for us about like, okay, moving forward, where are the opportunities in the oh, market? Awesome. Let's pretend COVID goes away or maybe COVID just stays. How is that going to affect consumer behavior in the future? And where are the opportunities? Where's the low hanging fruit? Hmm. Um, because we're, we're going into a new world like 2021 is going to be a completely new world that no one ever predicted with consumer behaviors that no one ever predicted. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to think forward and be smart and nimble and capture those opportunities. It's a great time to be very innovative and to offer consumers something that fixes a problem that they have. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what business is. You're fixing consumer products problems, but right now the whole world's disrupted and there's, it's like a, it's, it's like navigating a new game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, you're obviously very motivated. Um, and so I'm curious. So for someone who is sitting on an, a, an idea that they have right now or a mm-hmm. business idea that they want to pursue in the midst of all this, what is your advice to them? Um, my advice would be before you start a business, make sure that you are super trained in like take take a didactic like classical class even online about quickbooks <laughs> and some economics classes about food manufacturing and how that works i just recently did a food financing workshop that was so mind-boggling and even though it was such basic stuff but um i really wish i would have taken this class five years ago it, it was <laughs> it was very very um practical and it's when you're an entrepreneur and you're excited about your idea, it's very easy to ignore the practicalities because it's not so fun. It's not as sexy as ideas and, you know, um, optimism. And But without that, you're operating one-handed. So you're only going to be as effective as you could be one-handed cruising around, you know. You have to have your right and left hand working together at all times with a business. So you have to have that very practical finance piece Always understand your cash flows, where you're going, what money you're going to need, your projections, because that dictates all your relationships with your suppliers and your co-packers and your vendors and all the strategic partners that have to come together to successfully execute on an idea. And so every time anyone's like, hey, I've got this idea, and I'm like, 
take an Excel class first, <laughs> or you're just going to be banging your head against a wall, you know. And if you haven't done Excel for a few years, read refresh. Um, I wish I would have done that. So yeah, and so making that jump. Um, from nursing to going and you're going to start your own business. Um, and now, you know, Snacktivist is a wonderful brand. Um, what are you most proud of? Um, gosh, I mean, this year I'm proud we're still here. <laughs> um, that's actually a huge feat. Um, Definitely. Yeah, and last year I was, in a, I was in a pretty bad car accident in the fall too. So, like, I started out the winter hampered. And then when I... F- finally started to get up fighting again COVID hit Mm. so it's just been like I'm actually really proud to even still be here and I'm proud that we're a B Corp that's an accomplishment from an administrative standpoint (laughs) um which it's um that means that you're for profit of course because profit drives everything but you're also you prioritize people planet and and impact Mm. all within your fiduciary duty as a corporation I'm I'm proud of our team. We have a phenomenal team, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm just um, every time I get onto Amazon and I look at our reviews, I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's pretty incredible. Because what we're doing is kind of weird. I mean, we put out a sorghum focaccia bread. I mean, people aren't used to the taste of, of sorghum. You don't expect them to 100%. Lo- I mean, look at Sierra Nevada Brewing. You know, when he first founded it. He took, he took Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I mean, we consider that like baby beer nowadays. <laughs> and 80% of people spit it out. And they were like, oh, my gosh, what did you do to that? <laughs> did you mess it up? <laughs> did, is there too many hops? And he just knew some the people just weren't ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. So he just kept fighting against all odds. So I feel, I feel that way sometimes, too. So when I read our reviews on Amazon, I'm like, okay, there are people who get this. Like, people love this product. Mm-hmm. That's really rewarding, and I'm super proud of that. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so how do we get our hands on some Snacktivist products? <laughs> well, you can jump onto our website, and right now that has our full array of baking things. We're going to have a couple of just seasonal specialty ones going into December, like for cookie making and whatnot. Um, but then going into next year, we'll roll out and have more uh, finished product options too. Right now, you can try our finished products at some food service places. We're uh-huh. doing some pilot studies there, which will help get us um, moving forward because you don't ever want to really release a product on a bigger market until you've studied your consumer behavior. Hmm. So, like for instance, if you go to the Wine House in Coeur d'Alene, super cute little place, you can get Snacktivist pizza there. Oh, yeah. awesome. Super fun. So, um, and we've got other pilot projects like that going around in different places where we can study um, what the turn is and price point sensitivity and all those factors that you need to have to really execute well on a new product line launch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, you know, Amazon, you can always get on Amazon, Walmart.com. Um, yeah, right now those are like our biggest players. And then we have local retailers who are amazing. So, like, my Fresh Basket here in Spokane, they have been incredible to work with. Truly, like, incredible to work with. And uh, Spokane Spice Company, um, um, Rocket Market on the South Hill. Oh, yay. Yeah, 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 there's, like, fun indie indie retailers. Mm. Cool. I wish there were more of them. Um, you know, and then we, we, we're actually in a five-state area. So if you're in California or Nevada, Oregon, Washington, you can pick up our, our products elsewhere, too. 
Very cool. Mm-hmm. And then snacktivist.com is your website, correct? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Oh, yeah. 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 So um, definitely you have a beautiful snacktivistfoods.com. Snacktivistfoods.com. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have oh, a beautiful website. Thank you. Lots of great information there, yeah, too. I thanks. just definitely encourage everybody to go check out the website because yeah. all of the content you have is just wonderful. Thank you. It's, yeah. been, it's been fun. And um, yeah, that's always a great place. We were, we were actually releasing an ebook. Um, well, I want to say next week, but I don't know when this is going to publish. <laughs> so we're going to be releasing it this week, and it's going to go into the holidays. So it's going to be like the Snacktivist table. We're going to start producing seasonal ebooks. So each season, it's like eating within the seasons and mm. more seasonally focused. And it will have some play into the grains that we're using, like, but it's not going to just be a, a nonstop plug on our products. Like we might have a couple of features that use our products, but then there will be like other fun things like sneak peek. Our, our book that's coming out, like we have recipes in there that's like a um, making a homemade simple syrup out of cranberries for like a fun cocktail or a mocktail. Mm. You know, it has nothing to do with Snacktivist, but it's still seasonal eating. Yeah. You know, cool. and just those kind of fun little hacks. So we'll, yeah. we're going to start doing an ebook every season, like every quarter. And um, it will have a real focus on seasonal eating. So I'm going to have to call up Vince and Adam and <laughs> there you go. <laughs> my buddies over at Link too and be like, hey, well, you know, maybe we can team up on some features and, you know, like I was really interested to hear about the Radicchio project with Link because mm-hmm. I love Radicchio and I was so jazzed to hear that they have it. I didn't know that, that it was being locally grown. And so I'm like super excited. I would love to get my hands on some Radicchio and, and, and include that because I think people start to get in sync with the world when they start eating seasonally. Mm-hmm. And that's where grains play an important role if you live in the north. I lived. Here, I moved here from Alaska, so I know what it's like to live where there is no food growing for six months out of the year. You either get it flown in by plane, or you live on shelf staple provisions. Mm. I mean, when we lived in a cabin north of Fairbanks, it was like we didn't even have running water. You know, it was like true backcountry Alaska living, hauling in your water by sled, and you're not going to bust out with like some sort of like fresh, you know salad when it's 45 below zero right you know you're just not it's not eating in tune with your environment so Mm -hmm. that's where i think we've got to really also revisit grains because if you're eating seasonally they're an important part of your diet in the winter Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. love it um one more thing i do want to mention if you're in the coeur area um pilgrims they're i can't speak highly enough of pilgrims they are Mm -hmm. amazing organization over there and they've been like from the beginning, they've been amazing local advocates for our brand. So really appreciative to them. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Well, perfect. Well, um, we will make sure and keep our eye out for that ebook. Um, that's really exciting. Yeah, and then log on, go into yeah. our website and sign in and we'll, we'll, we'll send you a PDF as soon as it's ready. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. And we'll keep our eye on your social media and make sure and get mm-hmm. all of that posted to the Rocks to Roots podcast Facebook page. Um, we'll do some promotions as well on our Instagram page for Snacktivist. But um, yeah, and any ways that we can support you, we love what you're doing. Thank you. For the food industry. Um, and so thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so in closing, we like to do a little bit of a Spitfire round <laughs> just to get to know you a little bit. Yeah. So, I was you? chuckling <laughs> listening to some other guests <laughs> on this part. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I've got to be ready. Oh, it will be fun. So are you up for it? Yeah, okay. totally. All right. So what is a food that you can't live without? Um, that's a tough one. I'd say, well, if, if, if you're considering drinks, coffee is near and dear oh, to my heart. I can't yeah. live without coffee. 
I uh, can't live without smoked salmon. I smoke it myself. Um, oh, yum. Yeah. Can't live without greens. Yeah, I'm more of like a salty meat and greens person. So what I, I actually wanted to ask you this too. What if you have a favorite product of the lineup of Snacktivists, which ones, what would it be? Um, definitely, I'd say it's tied between the rosemary garlic focaccia mm-hmm. or the falafel. I need yeah. to get my hands on both of those because those yeah, sound so it's, good. It's totally savory, <laughs> robust. Like it's like um, the focaccia. I, you know, after spending some time in the Mediterranean and in Europe, and you taste the bread there, and it's just they don't shy away from big flavors there. They mm. just don't. They're not afraid of a denser loaf either because they don't engineer it to be fluffy Frankenbread. And so, um, you know, I wanted the focaccia to play into that more robust feel. Mm. And it is, it's it's a huge percentage of it is sorghum. I mean, it's probably the most sorghum forward product on the market oh, in America awesome. today. Cool. And you're getting a healthy dose of sorghum in that. But it, we did balance it out from a um, product engineering standpoint. So it has a little fluffy light tooth. Like if you, the whole point of it is just to soak up the balsamic vinegar and olive oil. Mm. Yes. That's the point. Because yeah. I'm, I'm a salad eater. Like I love vinaigrette and salad and greens. And I'm one of those people that I cover up my greens in the winter so I can harvest them late into the winter. And um, I always needed something to mop up. The, the vinaigrette on the bottom and yep. when you're gluten free <laughs> there aren't a lot of options it's not like you're going to take a crunch master rice cracker and like I mean that that would just be wrong right yeah right. no that's like so a sin you need, <laughs> yeah you need something that will really soak it up so oh, yeah, that yeah. One's, that's my favorite of all of all our products hmm. uh, what's your favorite plant or flower my favorite flower is a mountain. It's a mountain avon. It's a pulsatia genius that grows in the northern slopes of Alaska oh. in really harsh climates or above timberline, like way mm. in the far north. Oh, but my cool. favorite, um, you know, more, southern latitude is a, probably a tamarack or a lat- larch tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are you an early riser or are you a night owl? I'm a total night owl. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Everyone says entrepreneurs have to be like up at four at the gym. And I tried that for a while and it just about killed me. It's not my normal biorhythm. Mm. So I finally just had to come true to myself. I'm like, nope, that's just not me. I do my best work at night. <laughs> um, if you could meet anybody in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Wow, that's a really tough one. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, geez, where do I start? Hmm. I actually right now would be very fascinated about, to meet um, Scipio Africans, who was like a famous Roman general who defeated Carthage and turned the whole tide of history towards being Latin dominated versus Carthaginian, which was Tunis, Tunisia, and African dominated. And um, he had a very unique leadership perspective and a very unique way of rallying people to do something that seemed impossible and to fight a impossible enemy, which was Hannibal, the famous general of Carthage. And had Hannibal won and Carthage been the dominant force in the Mediterranean, I mean, the world would not be what it is today for better or for worse. I mean, it literally changed the course of global history. Mm. And they were a formidable force. I mean, they like had war elephants. And I mean, it just 
like crazy, crazy, crazy. And so I would love to meet him and pick his brain about like how, for one, did you have the courage to take this on? And like, how did you get people to follow you? Because right now, I mean, we're trying to do something crazy when you're fighting like the biggest multinational billion dollar companies in the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, and how do you get people to buy into that? So I think I could learn a thing or two from from Scipio Africans. I had to ask you that question because <laughs> I just knew you were going to have like some really cool. I will. <laughs> I'm, I'm such a dork like that. But um, but yeah, I've been really um, uniquely. I was never fascinated by leadership ever until recently. And I'm like, OK, there's really something to how do you get people to believe? leave into something that's so unconventional mm-hmm. very that's, cool yeah that's the future right there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right and then we ask all of our guests this so i think we might have a tie right now but beatles or rolling stones <sighs> Jeez louise that's also a tough one but i have to say at the end of the day i'm kind of i'm a rural organ kid i'm a rocker at heart so rolling stone <laughs> nice. but i love the beatles to too roots. but i'm just it's like my inner roots farm kid i mean we were listening to rock and roll rock mm. and roll and country was how i grew up <laughs> love it yeah well thank you so much again for being here Joni. this was such a fascinating wonderful talk i mean i feel like we could talk for hours and hours but um thank yeah. you so much for being here i'm um, i'm honored to have the invite and i hope i didn't get too heady on things <laughs> i just feel like we're just tapping the surface with creating a movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what snacktivism is. It's a it's a movement that supports a consumer behavior. Mm. So perfect. Mm-hmm. All right. Well snacktivistfoods.com. Go check them out. Go buy their products and become part of the movement. Sweet. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Rocks to Roots is sponsored by the Office of Farmland Preservation. Office of Farmland Preservation is a program within the Washington State Conservation Commission that works to address the rapid loss of working farm and forest lands in our state. Together, the Washington State Conservation Commission and conservation districts provide voluntary, incentive-based programs that empower private landowners to implement conservation on their property. You can learn more about their programs and services by visiting their website, scc.wa.gov. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rocks to Roots. Please make sure to subscribe to our Rocks to Roots channel. And also, more importantly, please leave us a review. That's the only way we can get better.